This is the Capital Literature Podcast, bringing you investment letters in audio. The Capital Literature Podcast is a SEBITS capital service for the investment community. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All rights belong to the respective owners. East 72. Second quarter 2021. Quarterly report number 20, period to 30. June 2021. Performance and net asset value. Quarterly gross portfolio return, 6.2%, fiscal year gross return plus 33.6%. Our portfolio has tended to react inversely to short-term movements in markets over the quarter, doing well in May but less so in April and June when stocks were stronger. In turn, this reflects our exposures to more esoteric securities which, with some exceptions, have generally been exposed to the value-slash-reopening end of the spectrum, which has lagged over the past quarter, e.g. Dow Jones Industrial Average plus 4.6% versus NASDAQ 100 plus 9.5%, and especially over the past six weeks since 13 May. The quarter really encompassed three periods. Middle.end March to early May 2021 when indices rose steadily. Middle. A very shaky period in the first two weeks of May, culminating in a sell off around the release of the U.S. April CPI and moves in 10 year bond rates up to 1.7%. And middle. A coming final six weeks when the extremely bearish sentiment and positioning in respect of U.S. bonds was unwound, the yield falling from 1.7% to 1.48% at June month end, which resulted in some astonishing rebounds in growth slash momentum slash technology stocks. Three examples from our short sale portfolio show the extent of these extreme, and in two cases detrimental, moves in high growth stocks, as the bearishness in bond markets unwound. Middle. Afterpay, ASX, APT, which ended March at $101.50, rose to over $127 by mid April, fell back to a low of $84.50 on 13th of May, and then rallied till to 40% to $118 by quarter end we profitably covered our short in the low dollar 90s. Middle.ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK, started the quarter at $120, rose to $128 by late April, collapsed to $99.50 in 12 trading days to 13th of May and then ascended virtually unchecked by 31% to $131 by end quarter as its underlying investments rose. And Middle.Trupanion, TRUP, the pet insurer, started the quarter at $76, meandered around to $75 by 13th of May, showing no reaction to a first quarter result with widening losses, then rose 53% to $115 in six weeks. Hence, in June, all five of our worst contributors were short positions in bouncing growth stocks. To assist in your understanding of why we short sell some of these companies, this report features a lengthy assessment of Cezzle, an ASX-listed BNPL operator based in the USA. Under these circumstances, such abrupt moves aren't usually replicated in value stocks. An excellent example is the Norwegian company, Treasure ASA, whose only asset is some cash and a holding in Hyundai Glovis. Its shares are down 4.3% over the quarter, whilst Glovis has risen 11.5%. As a consequence, the discount to NAV is now over 45%. All in when it's as good as it gets. My belief that this is close to as good as it gets for equities and that folks are all in is growing in conviction. 
In the past quarter, the S&P 500 rose 8.2% and has gained 14% in the first six months of CY21. The Nasdaq 100 increased 9.5% in Q2 and is up 12.5% for the year. However, the erratic manner of equity performance in the June quarter perhaps offers some portends as to how markets may correct. Anyone looking at coincident indicators would be surprised at our caution. We are about to enter a quarterly reporting period in the U.S. which will be the strongest quarter of earnings growth, 64%, since Q4 2009. Of course, there is an enormous base effect from the worst period of COVID in 2020, but S&P 500 CY21 earnings in the U.S. Dash which have been the subject of consistent upgrades through 2021, are currently forecast at 191, compared to 163 in CY 2019. It should be acknowledged that I have been too cynical about this progression. Moreover, the world is opening apace, apart from Australia and New Zealand where strategic errors of COVID vaccine ordering and rollout schemes are crimping growth and consumer confidence, the fact Australia seems to have splintered into eight separate countries, and has a federal election due in 10 months as an additional burden. It's hardly surprising people's psychological state is improving around the world, but the manner in which has been manifested in financial markets in the past six weeks is quite stunning. Everyone's a buyer of everything, bonds, oil, stocks, property and even bottom fishing in crypto. Consider these two charts from Bank of America Global Investment Strategy showing the magnitude of first half of CY21 inflows to equity funds against prior first halves, and the outstripping of the past 20 years first halves over the past six months. Chart 3 shows H1 annualized inflow to equities largest ever. Chart 4 shows H1 annualized equity inflows greater than prior 20 years. The sheer quantum of money directed at equities when fixed interest yields nothing is no surprise, never in living memory have we seen the spigots of monetary and fiscal policy so open, at the same time. M2 money supply in the USA grew 24% during 2020 and is still rattling along at a 13% year-over-year rate at end May 2021. U.S. total public debt as a percentage of GDP recently scaled a record-high 135%, over four times the level of 1980 and twice the level of 2008. Trying to understand Fed policy is now extremely difficult. The latest June unemployment figures in the U.S. show that the unemployed plus those marginally attached to the labor force now constitute 9.8% of the overall labor force, the recent low in December 2019 was 6.8% and the last time we were at these figures, on the way down, was May 2016. In May 2016, the two-year bond yield was 0.9% against the current 0.26%, 10-year Treasury yields were around 1.8%, roughly where they got to at worst this year, and 35 BP above where they are now. Don't forget, as employment recovered further, 10-year yields rose to over 3% in November 2018. The manner in which markets respond to minute changes in yields, shown in the past quarter, both ways, is most concerning, and suggests the Federal Reserve Board, and most other central banks, are trapped at these low rates and requisite bond purchases. Federal debt held by Federal Reserve Banks now equates to over 24% of U.S. GDP. In 2008, at the depths of recession, it was just over 3%. These simple figures show we truly are in the craziest, Frankenstein monetary experiment ever. No one alive has ever seen this. However, there is an increasing sense and foreboding that it is coming to a conclusion, when the consequences seem frightening. When money is so freely available, and free, 
past history suggests it leads to permissive behavior. This is manifested in different ways. Record numbers of IPOs, belief that the majority of new technology will automatically yield very high long-term excess returns, junk bonds that will not default, spreads versus treasuries now at 3% akin to mid-2007, that you can just buy assets at any prices to set and forget, notably housing, selected blue-chip stocks. Footnote. If ever you are going to read John Brooks' The Go-Go Years, please do it now. End of footnote. Or that anyone can make short-term returns out of equities from trading and playing, as the access to stock markets, or their derivatives is easier than ever via Robin Hood and commission-free trading. Retail investor interest in markets, particularly via options as shown in the chart above, reached absurd levels in Q1 Psi 21, after fading, it continued again from mid-May 2021, suggesting the recent rally in tech stocks and growth equities to have less than solid foundations. Recent indications, put-slash-call options ratios, for example, suggest it may again be rolling over. Speculating in call options, the right but not obligation to buy a security within a defined time frame in the future at a fixed price, was a key feature of the meme stock movement, GameStop, AMC Entertainment etc. Footnote. The Bendon slash Naked Brands article how a Reddit army brought an Aussie lingerie icon back from the dead, AFR July 2, 2021, is a brilliant read in this area. End of footnote, and correlates very highly with the performance of technology companies which are not profitable. These are the types of companies which may have a business plan, usually flawed, which they have to continually sell to investors to raise new capital. These are the type of stocks which cratered 80% plus in the tech wreck of 2000 to 2003. We also note that U.S. index performance has been becoming thinner, with the wider market starting to underperform the larger indices such as S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100, 22% and 41% FAMs respectively. The Russell 2000, RUT, is a highly diverse index comprised of that number of smaller companies. The largest weighting of an individual company is currently 0.72%, the mean stock AMC Entertainment, with an average market value of $1.85 billion, median $1.15 billion. E72 has increasingly used RUT as a hedging mechanism in tandem with S&P 500, since we don't end up, unwittingly, shorting large-scale technology companies in volume. Rudd outperformed the S&P 500 by over 40% from the market bottom in March 2020. Recent indications suggest such performance is starting to roll over. We are circumspect in our use of Rudd given its much greater daily volatility compared to S&P 500. The Bank of America Global Investment Strategy Survey suggests private client investors are all into equities, which would line up with some of the traits observed above, of course, this is a rather useful contrarian indicator over time, suggesting these folks historically buy high, sell low. So where might the problems emerge now everyone is as long equities as they have ever been? The past six weeks has once again reinforced the interest rate sensitivity within equity markets. With a clear belief amongst many that low rates, at both the short and longer end of the interest rate curve, are here to stay, what might change that and create greater issues? The obvious answer is unforeseen inflation or a belief that inflation currently perceived as transitory becomes more permanent. There are obvious pockets of demand pull inflation, with increased demand coming out of a pandemic where supply is restricted. This can be seen in vehicle prices, which for new cars are up 15% in the USA in June over the corresponding 2020 month. 
The inflation rate for cars is likely to subside when supply comes back on stream, which in turn is related to increasing the level of semiconductor production in Taiwan, as their drought and COVID cases subside. So whoever thought that the price of your used car was going to be a function of Taipei's weather? The biggest area of demand pull inflation, which is yet to show up in the CPI numbers for the US, or Australia, is housing. This is partly a function of changed collection methods due to COVID and the use of imputed rent in the U.S. statistics which capture asset price inflation within the housing market, but with a lag. In total, housing accounts for 32% of U.S. CPI figures. The other side of inflation is cost push where a third-party influence on inputs impacts the cost of a good. The clear one at present is freight rates which have risen dramatically, particularly on the China West Coast U.S. route. The cost of shifting the average FU, 40-foot equivalent unit container, has risen from just under $1,800 to $6,300 from end June 2020 to now. Moving the same container from China to Northern Europe has doubled to over $11,350 over the past 12 months. That, of course, assumes you can get a container. The combination of vessels out of service for ISO 2020 refits, Port blockages from undermanning due to COVID and profit maximization as demand skyrockets is fueling these amazing moves. There are small signs at both the China and Los Angeles ends that ports are freeing up a little. But these moves are still to feed through to the consumer. The biggest aspect of fueling inflation is expectations. As we know from the 1970s and 1980s, once inflation expectations rise, getting this genie back in the bottle is very difficult. Why? Because people start to build it into their daily lives, and begin to combat the problem, putting up prices at their outlets ahead of time, demanding higher wage rises, at a time of seeming labor shortages. Folks are very sensitive to higher fuel prices, which, of course, economists try to detract from the CPI figures, they are transparent and easily observable. If inflation expectations break out, we know in the Australian context how difficult it is to quell them. Our last major bout of inflation subsided in the mid-late 1990s after the Hawke-Keating-Actu Accord, an eventuality unlikely to be repeatable. In the U.S., it took Volcker's sky-high interest rates and a recession to do so. The current economic situation has increasingly challenged the narrative that deflation is an ongoing phenomenon, given that oligopolies around the world appear to dominate selected industries ranging from streaming to iron or to specialist computer chips to search. Service industries, with their key inputs of people are not immune. With long bond rates below 1.5%, credit spreads close to very cyclical historic lows, in this type of world, with numerous aggressive cost push influences, the chance of bond market dislocation from here appears more likely, especially after investors have now moved away from their extreme bearishness of only a few weeks ago. Portfolio Structure our top 10 long positions in alphabetical order as of June 30, 2021 are The Agency Group BNK Bank Dutura Royalties EL Financial Corporation Hal Trust Maserich Namoy Cotton Limited Prime Media Limited Treasure ASA Yellow Brick Road Limited The main changes over the quarter were Middle dot acquisition of new positions in Agency Group an Australian real estate agency group, driven by volumes, not price, and BMK Bank, a mortgage aggregator and bank, both securities have been through difficult periods but have reorganized their share registers and look significantly underpriced and should benefit from mild upward moves in interest rates.
Middle.Sale of our stake in Valhi which at one stage rose 56% over its end March 2021 level, we realized a 96% gain over purchase price in November 2020. Middle.Reduction of our stake in Australian rural capital at a price roughly twice net asset backing, adjusted for the recent rights issue. Middle.Acquisition of a smaller position in Bokes Acquisition Corp., BOWX, the SPAC which is acquiring WeWork. At prevailing prices of Bokes, the enterprise value of WeWork is tilde 10.2 billion US dollars, an 80% discount to the mooted and aborted IPO price in 2019. We view WeWork as having real traction as a business in the post-COVID world, which has now arrived in its major markets. Middle. We acquired three stocks on price weakness which all performed exceptionally after our purchase. Appen, the Australian AI and machine learning company, purchased on a free cash flow yield of 6%, and which rose 20% thereafter. Maserich, with an equity capitalization of only $3.8 billion US dollars, one of the largest shopping center owners in the USA, and is seeing significant improvements in patronage and space rentals, the shares are up around 44% from our $12.70 share acquisition price. Spotify, the streaming audio business, which is now exhibiting pricing power and a wider array of product via podcasting, has risen some 24% over our purchase price. Future Comments In the type of evolving environment we have mapped out, and with short sale positions across the S&P 500 at very low levels, we believe the complacency and permissiveness within markets suggests that a long-slash-short strategy will pay dividends over the next 12-18 months. Our gross return of 33.6% in fiscal 2021 was achieved despite being an average of 22.5% net long invested at month ends through the period. We are currently 67% net invested, 182% long, 80% index hedged, 35% high beta short stock positions, so can reduce much further. This suggests when some of the mania in unprofitable business models subsides, we should benefit, as well as if some of our longer-held highly undervalued positions come to fruition. In addition, our cost base in FY22 will be lower than FY21. The two contrasting stock examples below, we hope, illustrate these phenomena. Namoy Cotton Limited, five frustrating years on, we're finally at the starting gate. On July 26, 2016, so nearly five years ago, we bought our first shares in Namoy at 36C, roughly the same price they are today. We have one dividend of 1.9C in July 2018. The investment thesis we had then still remains, however, its execution has been painfully, painfully slow. Increasingly we feel that in the past few months, a culmination of management and board actions, together with ongoing help from the weather, hold out hope for much better future returns. Namoy is Australia's only listed cotton ginner, with a capacity of 1.5 million bales from nine wholly owned and two joint venture gins. Footnote. A bale is 500 pounds or 226.8 kilograms. At the prevailing price of cotton on CME of 84 US cents per pound and FX of 0.7550 a bale is notionally worth 556 Australian dollars. End of footnote. Two of the wholly owned are in the McIntyre Valley in Queensland, the remainder spread across four valleys in NSW. A cotton ginner separates the cotton lint from cotton seed, with each being sold to either a third party or repurchased. This lends itself to a series of adjacent activities such as cotton marketing, warehousing, packing, trading and processing. 
As a general comment, it is these activities which historically have underdelivered for Namoy and in 2011, nearly bankrupted the entity. Namoy was established in 1962 as a cooperative, and has been an unfortunate exercise, not uniquely, in cooperatives mixing with publicly issued permanent capital to provide an example of how the two just don't seem to blend. The members of the cooperative usually want a rebate or some other form of benefit, which reduces returns to the public shareholders. Few have been able to find the right balance, including Namoy. The situation usually turns into a slanging match between the two groups. In February 1998, Namoy offered 44.4 million new capital stock units, shares, to the public at 80 cents to supplement the existing 56.7 million units held by growers. Individual growers also held a maximum of 800 grower notes, redeemable at $2.70, which cemented control of the entity given the assorted voting restrictions on the shares. Dividends were lifted sharply from FY2006. Namoy has a February balance date which means, for example, that the February 2006 results reflected the calendar 2005 cotton crop. The entity also embarked on a share buyback plan. This shareholder generosity coincided not only with an uptick in ginning volumes and significant improvement in ginning profits, but a merger approach from the then other ASX-listed ginner, Queensland Cotton Holdings, QCH. The manner in which QCH galvanized the board to fight off the takeover in July 2005 has barely been repeated until the past two years. The QCH offer to shareholders $0.71 per share, $81 million, an extraordinarily generous offer to grower note holders equating to $83.93 slash note against their redemption value of $2.70, a $28 million seduction, was emphatically rejected. Having finally seen off QCH in January 2006, Namoy then embarked on a share buyback spree for the next year, paying prices in the mid-60C area, a mere 50% premium to the level two years prior. Having been treated like pariahs, Namoy shareholders generally lost interest and in line with reduced ginning profits in the FY09-FY11 period, perking up slightly in the early part of calendar 2011, as the cotton price started to improve along with expected ginning volumes. Namoy's 1998 prospectus is very clear as to the various risks impacting on the company, the majority of which, at the time revolved around the marketing business, which sat 100% owned alongside the ginning operations. Apart from credit risk and basis risk, difference between Namoy Cotton Quality and CME Cotton Futures Standards, Namoy sold cotton futures forward to lock in prices payable to their farmers-slash-suppliers. This requires some degree of risk management, but on the fateful day of October 4, 2011, it became clear that with a cotton price having traversed two U.S. dollars per pound and back to one U.S. dollar, it's currently about U.S. dollar 84C, that the cost of rolling hedges had swamped the company, and produced losses of over $50 million. Namoy shares collapsed to a low of 8C the following day, and an urgent recapitalization was finalized in early 2013 after an eventual $100 million pre-tax loss in FY 2012. This recapitalization, involving Louis Dreyfus Commodities establishing a marketing JV, Namoy Cotton Alliance, and accepting a placement, finalized in April 2013, paved the way for Namoy to modernize. Unfortunately, it has been a painstakingly slow process. The incumbent board lobbied against an outside director nomination in June 2013, but there was a gradual realization that access to outside equity capital had been closed, with the shares trading at one quarter of net asset value. Hence, 
the company was ostensibly beholden to their bankers, despite improving conditions, paving the way for a corporate reconstruction in 2017 to remove the grower notes and a rolling reconstruction of the board, mainly in June 2018, and eventual removal of all senior management in 2019. Of course, these changes did not manifest themselves in an uplift in the share price, since they coincided with the worst drought in over 100 years in many of the major areas of company operations. Table Table shows the Namoy Cotton Ginning EBITDA versus Central and CapEx. 2017. Ginning EBITDA 12,738. Central Overhead 6,579. CapEx 4,446. 2018. Ginning EBITDA 27,005. Central Overhead 9,108. CapEx 7,152. 2019. Ginning EBITDA 29,759. Central Overhead 8,810. CapEx 7,611. Without being libelous, it is difficult to convey our sense of annoyance with past management and board preceding the changes of mid-2018 which brought three board members. Why? Looking at the two bumper years of 2017 and 2018, out of over $56 million of EBITDA from Ginning, shareholders received only $2.6 million in dividends. The rest went on excessive capital expenditure and significant increases in central overhead. In addition, there was significant underperformance in the marketing business, ostensibly controlled by Louis-Dreyfus Commodities, plus a 15% minority position in an oilseeds JV controlled by Cargill which we are aware effectively blew up its equity. Footnote. Oscott, J.W. Boswell at the time, also owned 15%. End of footnote. Namoy have exited the oilseeds JV and restructured the relationship with Dreyfus to get away from the main balance sheet issues, trading, by limiting their interest in that to 15%, but retaining the 51% interest in the, unencumbered, warehousing and packing component. What we now have in Namoy is an expected four-pronged uplift in the company's fortunes from Middle dot breaking of the drought with expected increase in ginning volumes. Middle dot removal of the main risks from marketing and cotton seeds leaving the key focus on the area of competitive advantage ginning. Middle dot significant reductions in overhead costs from a focused management and board, and Middle dot improved balance sheet parameters via a recent placement of shares at 34 cents. In the 2021 season, reported in February 2022, Namoy will record a lower than usual market share, 450k bales of 2.5 million equals 18%, simply because of the differing water availability across its valleys. At the current stage, this is expected to reverse in 2022, reported in February 2023, where the company expected doubling of cotton production in the company's catchment valleys, set against an increase in national cotton production to just over 4 million bales. This suggests Namoy could gin 900k to 1 meter bales in 2022. Based on past ginning earnings at these volumes, and applying known cost reductions at the operational and overhead level, would suggest the company could earn EBITDA of $22 million in FY23, the year to February 2023. At current prices of $0.37, cents, with a market capitalization of $64 million and reduced net debt of $40 million, this leaves the company on an F-EBITDA multiple of well below 5x our estimated FY23 earnings. Three other aspects underpin our thinking. Firstly, 
NTA slash share is approximately 68C after the recent capital raisings, meaning they were done at half NTA. In our view when Namoy's capacity is assessed against the built costs of gins measured on an A per bale basis, the carrying value of the gins at $123 million, $82 slash bale of capacity, compares very well with parameters such as the Rifkat gin built in Karatul and the Riverina in 2005 for $24 million, 150k bale capacity. Secondly, the final aspect of converting Namoy to a fully-fledged public entity should take place on 20th July, when the AGM will seek to ratify the continuation of shareholder limits of 20% in the company. It won't, given the new composition of the share register, and a most welcome director's recommendation not to renew the limits. Finally, directors have made clear their intention to pay dividends in average, 835k bales, and above seasons, subject to obvious caveats. Hence, we now have a shareholder-friendly board who have driven significant cost reductions through a drought, had to raise expensive capital, but now have a clear vision as to the enhancement of shareholder return. We hopefully won't have to wait a further five years for some joy. Cecil, ask no questions, get told no lies, banking the unbankable? In our opinion, Cecil, ASX, SEL, is one of the worst type of companies which thrive in permissive markets such as those created by extreme monetary policy, risk-taking and storytelling around simple technology. Cecil is a 2 billion Australian dollar price Minnesota-based BNPL company, listed in Australia, but with no operations here. There is minimal analysis, in our opinion, by Australians with a long position in the shares, or understanding of really what might be happening. This sits alongside an unwillingness by the company to shed any light on the most unusual financing structure within the BNPL sector and the reasons why. Cecil's recent Form 10, Form 10, lodgement with US SEC and ASX is a gold mine of information showing the pressure the business is under from loss-making BNPL lending, alliances with larger merchants on onerous terms, and egregious funding relationships. The company highlights absolutely none of these factors in its upbeat effusive presentations. By working with the financials and the Form 10 added to other information, we can start to draw strong inferences regarding Cecil's underlying business model, the nature of many of its merchants and the possibility it is partly operating a bank for the unbankable. With the assistance of others interested in the potential barbecuing of investors' money for the benefit of a small number of executives with securities in the company acquired at minimal cost, but valued in the hundreds of millions, We have compiled the following abridged thesis, which is part of the rationale behind our short sale position in the shares. Footnote. A number of our Twitter friends, FinTwit, have provided assistance with background for this piece adding significantly to our own research. Most are anonymous or have a nom de plume handle, they know who they are and we acknowledge their efforts. End of footnote. There are seven key components to our short sale thesis for Cecil, as follows. One. Capital Structure, The Anti-Outsiders. Outsiders is the magnificent book by William Thorndike detailing eight CEOs who all are active managers of capital and all of who have used share buybacks to great effect. In our opinion, investors in SCL have been extremely kind in allowing massive vendor uplifts to insiders in exchange for what would be mandatory escrow provisions. The early days of SCL's operation shows a management team prepared to throw shares around like confetti, as long as it is to themselves and friends at advantageous prices. The SEL Prospectus, Replacement Prospectus dated July 8, 2019, transparently shows that in exchange for the management team and its backers doing two years' work, 
the company being incorporated in August 2017, they were happy to sell that effort and its 6.5 million US dollars of losses to Australian investors for a mere $142 million uplift at the IPO price of 1 Australian dollar and 22 cents per CDI SCL share. The company pre-IPO had 130 million shares on issue for which investors, mainly Charlie Joachim the executive chair and his coterie, had paid a mere 11.78 million US dollars. In addition, SCL executives thought so highly of the value of their SCL shares, they were prepared to offer a total of 5.813 million US dollars of convertible notes which converted to shares at the end of July 2019 at used 0.49 share, 70 Australian cents, or a 122% uplift at the IPO price for less than four months holding period. At the prevailing share price of 9 Australian dollars per SCL share, these uplifts now equate to 1.15 billion Australian dollars and 98.5 million dollars, around 1.25 billion Australian dollars for questionable effort. After an institutional placement in July 2020 of 14.9 million SCL shares at $5.30, SCL is left with a capital structure which is still highly disadvantageous to investors, unless it can get away its US IPO dash with some escrow sales, at a good price. In our view, markets are so crazy in this sector slash space at present, it will do. But what comes afterwards? The current capital structure of 225.7 million fully diluted SCL shares is middle.103.5 million SCL shares middle.94.0 escrowed SCL shares emerging on July 29, 2021 Middle.25.3 million SCL options and convertibles many of which have exercise prices as low as 5C established pre the IPO with 8 years left to run, and Middle.2.8 million assorted other shares. In other words, some 54% of the diluted equity base is locked up, a very high proportion. 2. Management presentations are aggressive and emit material negative issues. There are a myriad of examples of this phenomenon, including the Merchant Interest Program, MIP, discussed later, but the two most topical and recent are. A. On 11th of June 2021, SCL held their AGM on the same day as lodging an amended Form 10 to the U.S. SEC for registration of securities. The AGM presentation contained only revenue and customer-related metrics and a bunch of feel-good statements about opportunities to shape the future and doing good for the good of all. Notably on slide 25, headed momentum continued in Q1 21, there are the usual upward sloping bars. The momentum certainly continued in Q1 21, but of staggering losses. Page 50 of the Form 10 filing of June 11, 2021 shows SDL lost a further 10.2 million US dollars pre-tax in the quarter to March 2021, before paying away a 1.1 million US dollar fee for early termination of a line of credit they were struggling to use. This compares to quarterly losses of 4.4 million US dollars in Q1 Psi 20 and 3.8 million US dollars in Q2 Psi 20 plus an average of 12.1 million US dollars in Q3 slash Q4 Psi 20. There is no mention whatsoever of pre-tax losses in the 33-page AGM presentation. B. Far more insidious, if you are happy to gloss over such losses, are the series of announcements reflecting the changed business model to focus on larger-scale merchants. Since late April 2021, SCL have announced three merchant partnerships. Market America Worldwide, 29th of April, 
Lamps Plus Partnership, 26th of May, and a three-year agreement with Target Corporation, 3rd of June, along with a longer-term finance offer with Ally, 20th of May. However, in none of these releases to ASX Dash on the relevant dates noted above, is it disclosed that Middle.SCL is committed to reimbursing up to approximately $35 million US dollars to these merchants in co-marketing expenses, and Middle. In the event of SCL not meeting certain volume criteria and implementation benchmarks with certain merchants, SCL may be required to make further payments. It's worth noting that as at March 31, 2021, SCL had only 41.6 million US dollars of unrestricted cash, $8.0 million US dollars of accrued liabilities and is burning through used 5-6 million a quarter in cash operating losses, once the, the benefit of share-based payments is added back. It's not unreasonable to conclude that SCL probably needs an equity issue of some description. Moreover, in page F35 of the Form 10, SCL disclosed it is already under pressure from an agreement signed in December 2020 that it was probable it would not meet its first contractual performance obligation under the agreement to June 30, 2021, and would be required to make an expense. We don't know exactly, but believe this relationship is game stop, SCL's largest referrer, see later, suggesting where they are in a non-exclusive relationship, SCL are being aggressively outcompeted by other BNPL providers. Big Announcements Questionable execution. 3. Cezil is underperforming versus identifiable competitors such as Quad. Pay. In June 2020, Zip Pay, ASX, Z1P, announced the acquisition of a US BNPL entity, Quad Pay, for 403 million Australian dollars, mainly using Z1P script to vendors and via placement. Let's compare the metrics of the two businesses, together with that of Afterpay. Since that point, to March 31, 2021 in North America, Klarna don't give the transparency of statistics in the U.S. Before looking at the table, it is worth noting that at the time of Z1P buying QuadPay, SEL had a market capitalization of 572 million Australian dollars, share price, $2.60, and that Z1P issued shares to buy QuadPay at $3.39. Table since that time, SCL shares have appreciated by 246% to $9, plus $1.4 billion to market value, vastly outperforming Z1P shares, plus 124% to $7.60, despite the clearly better growth of Z1P. It is rather clear, even from the above simplified table, that middle.scl does not have the marketing cloud to compete with APT, QuadPay, or Klarna. It does not have access to the sheer scale of equity capital to support an aggressive and expensive marketing strategy. In the six months to December 2020, globally, each new Afterpay customer costs around 21 Australian dollars and 60 cents to acquire. Z1P is lower at 14 Australian dollars and 47 cents. For Cezil, it's about 5 Australian dollars and 30 cents equivalent. In our opinion, that is not a positive; it's a negative. Middle.Cezil's underlying sales per merchant are very low reflecting the fact they have far fewer tie-ups with large-scale merchants, the quality of Cezil's merchants is discussed further in 6 and 7 below. In our opinion, Cezil has limited competitive traction against the visible larger players, let alone others such as PayPal. The unsustainability of the business model becomes clearer when we look at the fees charged to these smaller merchants, which then morphs into questioning the nature of such customers. Dot. 4. 
Sezzle continues to lend to high-risk customers. Sezzle has a worrying track record of lending to customers who are unable to repay their lending commitments from the company. Somewhat surprisingly, in a new industry where initial loss expectations will be high, but where participants should learn from early mistakes, we see limited signs of these benefits within SEL. As an example, within Afterpay, impairments as a proportion of underlying sales have averaged 92 BP since the end of CY15, and have shown a gradual downward trajectory from 165 BP in the half to December 2016 down to the latest two half years being around 0.74%. Since Cecil commenced in 2017 through March 31, 2021, the company's cumulative underlying sales have totaled just over 1.5 billion US dollars. The company has racked up total write-offs of 23.8 million US dollars and had 11.6 million US dollars of provisions to total cumulative credit losses of 35.4 million US dollars minus 2.35% of underlying sales. This is over two and a half times the relevant ratio at Afterpay and illustrated below is not an improving trend. Table Table shows the Cecil Incorporated, provisions, write-offs, and credit delinquency costs. Once again, Cecil's selective disclosure in presentations doesn't extend to explaining that delinquencies in the first three months of CY21 continued close to the high levels of H2CY20 and annualized at close to $35 million US dollars per annum, around half of gross margin. 5. And so they charge very high fees but still make no money. In less than four years to March 31, 2021, Cecil has racked up pre-tax losses of $60 million US dollars, excluding extraordinary items, of which nearly 60% relate to credit losses, noted above. Unlike many other high-growth companies at this stage of development, these losses are not due to hefty sales and marketing expenses. In total since incorporation, Cecil has only expended $7 million US dollars or so in marketing. As we discussed in section 2 above, that's about to change significantly. Moreover, these pre-tax losses have accrued despite merchant charges which are well above the cohort group. Indeed, bizarrely in an industry with increasing competition, SCL's merchant fees as a percentage of sales are actually increasing. In the latest quarter to March 31, 2021, merchant fees amounted to 5.93% of sales. See table next page. As a guide, afterpays fees slash sales, excluding late fees paid by customers, equated to 3.89% having gently glided down from a peak of 5.44% in the half-year to December 31, 2017, and 4.10% over the past four and a half years. Despite this, SCL's pre-tax losses have compounded dramatically over the past three quarters. In H2Si20, the company lost a whopping $24.2 million US dollars, and continue this ugly trend in Q1CY21 with a pre-tax loss of $10.2 million US dollars prior to the $1.1 million US dollars cost of extinguishing the tripartite line of credit facility to transition to Goldman Sachs Bastion. Table. Table shows the Cecil Incorporated quarterly merchant fees from December 2017 to June 2019. It would appear that the more business that Cecil transact, the more money they lose given the need to pay large co-marketing fees to counterparties, and the ongoing 2.25 to 2.5% of sales becoming uncollectible, effectively negating 40% of gross fees. 6. Funding structure may strangle Cecil without an equity issue. SCL's funding structure, 
in particular the use of high-interest alt-financiers on onerous terms, illustrates the company operates on the fringe. When combined with its unique and undisclosed until July 2020 Merchant Interest Program, MIP, this is a funding structure with enormous risk. The MIP is typical of SCL's haphazard public company reporting of crucial aspects of the company's operation, and raises significant red flags. It first appeared in slide 15 of the capital raising presentation of July 2020 with no explanation, despite being in place when the company floated, but was not mentioned in the original July 2019 prospectus. It has since been described in filings in a more fulsome manner commencing in August 2020. Aside from equity, there are two parts to the funding structure of SCL's receivables, lines of credit and the unique MIP whereby merchants who accept CECL can reinvest the purchase amount, minus the 5% plus fees, with SCL at Libra plus 3%, reduced from Libra plus 5% between June 2020 and December 2020. To the best of our knowledge, no other BNPL offers this facility. We will deal with why a merchant may wish to do this in the section 7 below. Most smaller retailers we know, want to get the $200 for their Nike sneakers very quickly, to replenish inventory. But what if you're not selling Nike sneakers? Since the IPO on July 30, 2019, SCL is now onto its third different lines of credit, all of which it has struggled to fully utilize. In November 2018, it had a $30 million line of credit with Bastion Funding, a high-interest alt-financier based in Stamford, CT, who specialize in these lines of credit to fringe financiers. Nothing wrong with that, but the initial loan rates to SCL were Libra plus 12% on the first $15 million and Libra plus 10% on the second $15 million. In November 2019, the Bastion facility was refinanced into a $100 million facility with Bastion and two of its mates at Libra plus 7.75% with minimum drawings of $20 million US dollars from end November 2019 and $40 million US dollars from November 2020. Under these arrangements, as is usual, the lenders required a level of restricted cash, $4.8 million US dollars at December 31, 2020, and pledged receivables. On February 11, 2021, in another masterstroke of selective disclosures, Cecil trumpeted the entry of the Vampire Squid as a partner alongside Bastion, leaving the two other financiers behind. The ASX announcement is disingenuous, the covenants include leaving $25 million US dollars in restricted cash, five times the previous amount, for use of the facility which operates in two tranches of A. 97.2 million US dollars at Libra plus 3.375%, and B, 27.8 million US dollars at Libra plus 10.689%. Footnote. Cecil signs $250 million receivables warehouse facility ASX release 11th of February 2021, which talks of size, longevity and other, where other is described as covenants, representations and warrants and reporting obligations typical of a similar receivables warehouse facility. The first thing you need to know about Goldman Sachs is that it's everywhere. The world's most powerful investment bank is a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. Matt Tybee The Great American Bubble Machine, Rolling Stone April 5, 2010 End of footnote the facility requires pledging of pretty much the entire loan book, rightly, since it operates as a factoring-type arrangement whereby SCL can draw down a maximum of 90%, depending on FICO score, of the pledged receivables. Now remember, these receivables have a delinquency rate of tilde 2.5%, flow, and tilde 10%, 
stock, so that's why the restricted cash is so high, for such a loose arrangement. In our opinion, SCL Cecil Up campaign, whereby subject to conditions, SCL report your payment history to credit bureaus, is heavily related to this facility. FICO scores, the ubiquitous credit scoring system developed by Fair Isaac Corporation, NYSE, FICO, are usually in a range of 300 to 850, the cutoff with the Goldman facility to maintain factoring of 85% is 580, the generally accepted FICO cutoff where fair credit turns to poor. Footnote. Fair Isaac, FICO, is one of the great U.S. investments, being a near monopoly, the shares having bottomed at $10 in February 2009 and now trading just over $500. End of footnote. But these pledges of assets run into a roadblock, the MIP, whereby SCL allow the merchants to reinvest at Libra plus 3%. What if there wasn't enough cash to repay the unsecured merchants when they want their money back, in maximum $250,000 tranches? The February 11, 2021 announcement is so disingenuous, because it has led SCL down that potential pathway. The following table shows a massive adverse change after December 31, 2020, and that SCL are effectively 31 million US dollars short, by looking at the gap between middle dot assets pledged to the line of credit providers plus MIP, including normal creditors which are around 12 to 13% of MIP, liabilities, and middle dot total receivables plus unrestricted cash, assets. This is not terminal, but with the company losing 10 million US dollars a quarter, it clearly makes sense to buttress their unrestricted cash with an equity raising. To do so as part of a US IPO, as key executives SCL shares come out of escrow, makes even more sense. But would you want to be on the other side of the transaction, given you know it is a must-do? How would you price it? 7. Who might these reinvesting merchants be? You have money you don't need straight away and can get interest of Libra plus 3% on it. So at the time of writing that's 3.13%. What's the catch? Well it's unsecured, the company you are depositing it with is losing around 40 million US dollars a year and virtually all of their receivables assets are pledged to two financiers who are way smarter than you. What if you had to keep your money in the map by necessity? Traffic to Cecil's website is around 75% direct and 25% referral. The direct travelers are able to look for categories from which to purchase. One of our cohorts research shows clearly that the SCL site is the only one to allow purchase of hemp products within the BNPL space, APT, Z1P, Klarna, Affirm do not. But hemp into Cecil's search bar. High-risk businesses, drug paraphernalia, herbal flowers, escort services, adult bookstores, online casinos, lottery stands, are not illegal in many jurisdictions. However, payment processors of credit-slash-debit cards used by every retail outlet have an industry code, easily viewed online. Various industry codes are deemed high-risk, look up 5968, and many processors don't want to deal with them. Other processors actively seek out this type of business, often using non-visa cards, as the margins are very high indeed. Footnote. Direct Marketing Continuity-slash-subscription merchant for pornography websites, content memberships, and other adult continuity products, such as electronic items. End of footnote. We can gain more than an inkling that SCL's business is far higher risk than its ASX-listed cohort, through analysis of its cost of sales, the simple cost of processing the payments to SCL before overhead costs. 
This has historically equated to over 3% of sales equivalent, CF afterpay 1.12% to 1.25%, and despite increases in sales volumes, at significant overhead costs, is still twice that of afterpay at 2.38% in the three months to March 31, 2021. We box the com leaf in the Cecil screenshot, above, the com leaf is a totally legal seller of hemp products based in Hollywood, California. The screenshot below shows just one of their many products, and the legal restrictions around where they cannot be dispatched. The problem in this industry comes because of U.S. banking practices. A recent Reuters article points out that whilst marijuana businesses are doing extremely well in the U.S., a result of decriminalization in many states, the fact it is still illegal at a federal level means that U.S. banks will not bank the industry. As a consequence, these businesses are rolling in cash, making them obvious targets for bandits. What if you could transact using a BNPL platform like Cecil and reinvest the money with the platform until federal legislation changed? Of course, when federal legislation does change, what happens to Cecil's form of cheap funding? We'll leave you to ponder whether Citibank or Cecil might be a safer place for your cash deposit. On the other side of the customer-slash-merchant coin, around a quarter of traffic to Cecil's website is via referrals, the top referrer is GameStop. However, referrers 2, 3 and 4 as in April 2021 were rights to Phantom, Crunchyroll, both anime sellers, and Lilo.com. Lilo? Show it to your partner, but not at work. Footnote. Lilo.com is a Swedish intimate products retailer, and has a superbly presented website, but definitely NSFW. End of footnote. Since Cezal will not disclose its underlying merchant sales by industry, we have no way of knowing what proportion of sales are comprised by these type of high-risk merchants, some of which are unbankable. Moreover, if they become bankable, which eventually seems inevitable, the benefit of using Cezal will be significantly diminished. Further, Cezal's need to make significant, barely affordable co-payments to larger merchants to get them to sign on, over 35 million US dollars in future commitments, in an attempt to maintain the chimera of respectability adds, in our view, to the likely inevitable financial weakness of this enterprise. In our opinion, chimera is a word that resonates through this corporation, an ongoing struggle between greed and respectability. Aside from the egregious insider interest, SCL is certified as a B Corporation 32, and suggests its mission is to financially empower the next generation. We find it hard to square that with charging merchants and high-risk industries fees of up to 9%, having the highest merchant fees in the BNPL sector on a total basis, and engaging in the type of selective disclosures, omitting, and certainly glossing over, what we believe are material facts, as we have highlighted throughout this discussion. Given its ongoing losses, which we believe will extend well into the future, we are astonished SCL has a market value of over 2 billion Australian dollars. We expect a new issue of shares to the US market as part of the IPO, but also expect the two co-founders Charlie Yu Kim, 88.4 million SCL shares, and Paul Paradis, 10.0 million SCL shares, to avail themselves of the opportunity to diversify their portfolio. In our view, so they should, but we won't be helping them. For further information. Andrew Brown. Executive Director.